podcast, where we explore the backgrounds of interesting individuals and how they intersect with our building industry in Iowa. I'm your host, Ben Hammes, and I'm going to bring to you topics that help educate, develop, grow, and enhance you and your company. All right. Thank you, Bill Schmarzo. Welcome to the podcast here. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for having me. So can you do a quick introduction for our group? I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the Master Builders. We're an organization that's been around over 100 years. We're primarily in the commercial construction industry. And I know you speak um, to a lot of different organizations. And I'll kind of talk about how we got hooked up together. But I think your experience is what drew us here. So tell me, uh, tell the crowd and the audience uh, a little bit about yourself and maybe your connections to Iowa. Sure. So um, a bit about myself. So I've been I've been a longtime data and analytics person, probably going back to my teenage years of playing stratomatic baseball and stratomatic basketball, kind of the precursor to sabermetrics. So I've always been kind of a uh, of a statistics numbers kind of a guy. And I've sort of parlayed that over the year through a number of different jobs. I was um Vice President of Advertiser Analytics at Yahoo at the height of Yahoo's expansion. I was the Chief Innovation Officer at Hitachi Vantara. Um, and now um, I'm at Dell Technologies where I'm their Customer Data Innovation Lead. Probably even more interesting is I'm a professor. I teach at a number of different universities. I teach at Iowa State right now. I also go over to Ireland one week a year and teach over there and at the National University of Ireland. So I spend a lot of my time teaching as well. A lot of things that I teach are around data and analytics. But I think what's interesting, Ben, about my, my trajectory is I've, I've gotten further along, especially now we're talking about things like AI and you know chat GPT and all the rage around AI, is I found I have transitioned away from being a technologist more towards being a humanist and an economist. Mm. And you'd be surprised how similar those two ideas are. So I'll leave it at that. We'll probably talk about it in more detail during the podcast. Um, background, I grew up in Charles City, Iowa. Um, so I'm a native Iowan. My wife grew up in Marion, Iowa. We met at Coe College in Cedar Rapids. I got my MBA from University of Iowa. So I, I've got, I got a son who lives in Bettendorf. I have a sister who lives in Avoca. My, got a, my wife has a brother living in North Liberty and a mother living in Cedar Rapids. And so we have a lot of Iowa linkages that really, after spending 40 years on the West Coast, primarily in Palo Alto, California, led us to come back to Iowa. That's great. What's it like being a Hawkeye grad teaching at Iowa State? Is that a problem? It, I, I have to have um, be very careful what I say. And ah. uh, Well, the, the other challenge is my son is, is an Iowa State grad, so I already okay. have a house divided, and so this kind of even makes it more so. Sure, sure. Now, you came my way through our friends at the Technology Association of Iowa. Tyler Weingarten, I know, had attended, I think, a lecture that you had had recently at Iowa State. Was that uh, in the last month or two? Yeah, I did. I think it was the one at Drake. I'd done one at Drake. Drake, Drake. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And are you, when you're uh, teaching, are you in person or are you virtual? Oh, my gosh. So, well, it kind of depends. If I'm doing a, you know, a one-off, one-hour lecture, I'm virtual. Like, I'm doing a lecture tonight uh, to the University of Illinois MBA program. Okay, so that's you know I'm not I'm not going to drive to Champagne, so I do that virtually. I did a lecture just earlier this week to the board of directors of a large bank in South Africa. Oh, Again, wow. so virtual. That's great, yeah. right? I'll fly to South Africa for that. But my class, which I run at Iowa State and I'm also going to be doing at Co College, is in person because okay. a lot of the techniques we're teaching 
people who aren't data scientists, we're teaching them how to think like a data scientist, how to understand where and how they can apply analytics to data to drive value. And so I have a methodology, it's called the art of thinking like a data scientist. It's walks people through, it's a hands-on approach. And I, so I like when I work with the students, I want this to be hands-on. They work in groups, they learn to collaborate, they learn to struggle. They, all the important things that when they come out of that class, they are prepared to sit down with any organization and help that organization drive value out of their data. I love that. That's a, it's a perfect transition into what I think we want to talk about here. I was watching one of your uh, lectures online and, you know, first of all, the CEO of big data is a, is an awesome title. Kudos for, for that. <laughs> well, CEO to of correct you, it's the Dean of big data. I'm sorry, Dean of big data. That, that's even better. That's, yeah. that, that's, I see it on your license plate in the background too. There so. you go. Yeah. Yeah. There you, go. Um, you know, one of the questions that struck me right away was, I think you said, how effective is your organization at leveraging data and analytics to power your business models? Can you, can you talk about that? Amen. Yeah. So that one of the, I, I'm kind of a person who, who likes to think in frameworks. I'm a kind of a process person. Maybe that's a German in me. And that this, this, we created this big data business model maturity index. That was a, to help companies understand not only how effective are they today in getting value from data and analytics from their business model perspective. It's not how effective are you at using technology? How effective are you at SQL or TensorFlow or some of these technologies? That's, that's really immaterial. It's really how are you using data and analytics to power your business model, which is really about an organization's business model should be around value creation. You think about your customers, your constituents, your stakeholders, and how I'm creating value. And so we created this big data business model maturity index to help under organizations understand where they are, what good looked like. And most, by the way, most organizations are on the very far left. They are not very far along They're They're struggling mindedly, but it gave them a roadmap. Uh -huh. Here's what you need to do. Step one is do this. Step two is do this. Step three is do this. It gave them a roadmap to get from where they are today, no matter how good or bad they are with using data and analytics to power their business models, we take them along this journey to show them how they can get more effective and how you bring the organization along on that journey. Yeah. We just had a, uh, a series here called Executive Insights. We're hosting for our C-suite executives uh, of our membership. Um, and one of the, uh, you're in a simplistic mode, you're, the model you just described, we, we kind of surveyed the crowd of 75 uh, of these CEOs and asked them that kind of similar question. Where are you in your processes and by far and away they were very 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 early on if they have even adopted the early on phase yeah. so when you're speaking to these companies i guess my next question is are these companies of 3000 people that have data scientists are you working with small businesses where where are you focused in your uh in your teaching so it ends up being kind of a mix um I recently ran a series of workshops at Co College, and these were all organizations that I would say probably I would call them medium-sized organizations. Okay. Um, they're not huge. They're not the Bank of Americas. They're not the Disney's. They're not the General Motors of the world, who I also talk to as well. But here's what's interesting: even the big companies that have all the resources and do this for a long time, a lot of them are clustered along the left side of that curve as well. Mm. They may have organizations like you think about a bank. Banks are really good at fraud detection and they're really good at credit management, but they do other things very poorly. 
they don't manage retention very well. They don't do marketing very well. They, there's other parts of the organization where they, they may have done a really great job of using data and analytics around one particular set of use cases, but they haven't figured out how to permeate across the organization. And so you've, you've got these pockets of success, but you even have larger areas of organizations that are, are dying for help mm. and don't know how to progress. And by the way, in large organizations, no ding on large organizations, but they don't talk to each other. Mm. So, if your fraud group is doing great and you're in marketing, too bad, right? Yeah. Too bad you're on your own. Sure. This, this is why I think the big beneficiaries of this, of what's happening in the world around data and big, you know, big data and AI is not the big organizations that have to fight through all that bureaucratic organizational mess. It's the small groups that can actually pivot quickly. You got, if you have an inspired CEO who can, who can fire up the troops who can build a grassroots support? You can see small organizations have huge impact. I've seen, you know, Rainforest Connection, a very very small organization that's out to protect their Amazon, right? They have a CEO with a vision, and they're using data and analytics to help identify areas where the loggers are likely to go before the loggers even get there. They've got mm -hmm. rangers there waiting for the loggers to show up and arrest them, but right? they're not waiting for the loggers to come and cut shit down. Right? Mm -hmm. So you you don't need to be big to do this. What you need to do. You need to be nimble and you need to have fortitude to really figure out how do I transform not just the executive suite, but the entire organization. Let, let me give you another example here, Ben, Please. is when you, what are the key things we're trying to do in data science? So if you ask me, what, what is data science? Marzo, tell me what data science is. I'll say, this is what it is. Data science is about identifying those variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance. Period. Wow. That's it. Key. 16 words. That's all it is. That's all it is. The key is identifying those variables and metrics that might be better predictors. Who are the people who understand what those variables and metrics might be? Not the executive suite. It's not the vice president of marketing or procurement or logistics. It's the people at the front lines of customer engagement and operational execution. So if you really want to be successful at AI and advanced analytics and exploiting big data, it isn't about getting that executive suite all fired up. It's, it's empowering, empowering the front lines to say, oh, yeah, you know, if you wanted to address COVID, for example, which was the basis for my, my fourth book was called The Economics, Data and Analytics, Digital Transformation. And I wrote it probably as fast as I've ever written a book before because I was pissed off. <laughs> I was pissed off on the decisions we were making around COVID. We were making decisions based on averages. Right, who got what treatment? Who had right? All the all the sanctions and and rules and regulations were all based on averages, and of course, people were even ignoring those. Right, but we had the ability, as a country, to create a score on every individual that measured your likelihood of dying from COVID if you caught it, and we could have used that to make decisions regarding who gets vaccination, who needs to wear masks. Everybody probably wears masks, but who needs to adhere to all these different rules and regulations? Who you, you could probably fly if you're of a low score. And if you have a high score, I don't care if you're if you're 22 years old, right? And you if you have a score that indicates because you've got diabetes or some pre-existing condition, right? You probably shouldn't fly in an airplane. But if you're you know, 66 years old and you're in good health, you probably could, but we mm -hmm. didn't do that. And mm -hmm. so we have to empower the front lines because in the case of the COVID example, I had my students at Menlo College actually build a score for created a score, a model that gave everybody a score. They did it in a spreadsheet. What they did though, 
to identify those variables and metrics, who did they talk to? Not the CDC. They talked to the nurses and the doctors. And the nurses would say, well, when we see patients with these sorts of conditions, we know they're in trouble. Diabetes, you know, overweight, BMI too high. Uh, you know, they knew all the variables and metrics. And when you put that into a formula and you did the right kind of weights and you started testing and learning, you came up with a score that was, I mean, this was a bunch of undergrad students using a friggin' spreadsheet who could create this. Mm -hmm. So don't tell me we couldn't, as a country, come up with a much better approach that would have accelerated our ability to get through the pandemic in an intelligent, focused fashion instead of the overly generalized way we attack problems. Anyway, you got me off on a soapbox here. No, that's fine. It's 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 applicable because putting you on the spot a little bit, but when you look at our industry, how do we use those applications to improve safety on the job sites, to uh, improve human error with estimation, to looking at design capabilities? Part, I mean, in some ways, we're already behind the eight ball. It's already happening in our industry to a large degree, but it's not being adopted to the rate that we think we could in improving these business decisions and likely outcomes. So have you ever, have you given, again, we, you and I just met, so you haven't probably given us a lot of thought related to our industry, but uh, off the top of your head, are there applications or usability features that our members could, could take a look at that they should be looking at? Or oh, yeah. does it start with, maybe it's just starting with doing a survey of their own companies and talking to the operations and frontline folks and finding out how they can improve. What's, what's your suggestion there? So I always like to start by understanding what is it you're trying to accomplish? What's your most challenging problem? So let's say let's go let's go safety, right? So let's talk about let's say we're gonna we're gonna focus on safety. We're gonna use our analytics and AI to improve improve employee safety, drive down those insurance costs, all the ancillary yep. benefits of that. So once we know what problem we're gonna go after, what I want to do is I want to understand okay, what are the decisions we're trying to make? to support that? What are the desired outcomes we're looking for? What are the KPIs and metrics around which we're gonna measure the effectiveness of those outcomes? And across a diverse set of internal and external stakeholders, what are their desired outcomes and what are the KPIs and metrics against which they're gonna measure effectiveness? Mm -hmm. So that's how we start. We don't start by, well, grabbing data and throwing a machine learning model against it. We try to understand desired outcomes across and, and KPIs and metrics across our internal and external stakeholders. And the real key nugget is decisions because what we can do with data and analytics, we can optimize decisions. So decisions regarding what safety gear to wear for what kind of projects for how long, right? There's, there's a series of decisions that your stakeholders are making around safety and we're going to capture those and we're going to bring them together. We're going to aggregate them into common subject areas. We're going to put them on a prioritization matrix like this, by the way, this sits in my back of my office, I was just talking to the Department of, ha of Homeland Security yesterday, and they have a problem that they need to figure out how, what decisions are we trying to make across our stakeholders and the KPIs, metrics, and desired outcomes, right? This, this is a great, simple tool for getting the organization aligned around, okay, here's the problems we're going to solve first. Here are the decisions we're going to optimize. And once I know the decisions, then I can figure out what data do I need? What analytics do I need? And by the way, you're probably not going to need AI. You can probably do it with, you know, a regression model, something pretty simple. But we've got to start simple. We've got to start focus on a problem, and we've got to make sure we understand how that problem defines and measures value creation. Fascinating. That, that, that's that's really really good stuff. What I, I do want to talk about AI a little bit though. Here, I mean, it's smacking everybody in the face, and if you don't look at it, you're you know you're you're ignoring a, a large. 
uh, issue that's going to face companies. So when we talk about AI, though, um, let me just say this honestly. The industry, nationwide, we know it. We talk about it all the time. We're sometimes uh, behind the eight ball when it comes to adopting new things. We're hard-nosed. We're proud of it. We get the job done. We're hardworking. We, we, we've done it one way for a long time. There's, a, I think, a natural resistance in this industry to adopt things like AI. What do you say to a company like that who says, you know what? We're doing just fine. We're going to keep doing it. We don't need it. What do you say to, to, to those companies? So I, I would have a discussion regarding, so what's your business problem? And so they might say, um, you know, inventory management. We got too much inventory. It's costing us money. Working capital is all tied up in inventory. And I said, what if we could use data and analytics to reduce your inventory costs by 10%? Is that interesting to you? How about if we can make better decisions regarding not only what inventory we should be buying from, from whom and how long we should hold of it, but in some cases we have you know, excessive and obsolete inventory you need to get rid of. What's the salvage value? And so I like to sort of take it and get down to a very pragmatic problem they've got, whether it's inventory or maybe, you know, maybe what do I bid on a project, right? What should I bid on a project? What are all the variables and factors? And focus on one problem and show them how data and analytics can help optimize the decisions around that. So we're going to always come back to decisions, right? Decisions are really are a really powerful link for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, every business stakeholder I've ever talked to knows what decision they're trying to make. Now, I used to work construction in high school and college, right? I know what kind of decisions we're making regarding how much concrete we're going to need, how many forms we're going to need, and we're pouring the street. I have I had a pretty good idea of how much the decision we had to make, right? So I'm going to focus on understanding how do I make better decisions? How do I optimize my accuracy of ordering the right kind of concrete? How do I make sure I have the right number of people and project and time and all the right equipment there? Right? All the decisions regarding, you know, pouring a street, for example. So I, the users know the decisions because they make them every day. All I'm going to do is leverage data scientists who know how to optimize decisions. That's mm -hmm. what they do, right? I'm going to bring data science in this process. I'm going to help to optimize those decisions because remember what data science is? Data science is about identifying those variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance. When you look on a project, for example, you're trying to make a decision regarding inventory. You're looking at the time of year, the weather, you know, what holidays you might have problems getting workers in, it might get supplies in. You're looking at all the variables and metrics that might impact that decision. And the people at the front line of the organization, they know those variables because they live them every day. And all I'm going to try to do is get the business user to ID and say, I think these are the most important variables. And the data science team is going to look at them and say, well, these are actually the five most five most important variables you should worry about. And then you, it's, it's, it's easy. It's an easy problem. We make it sound so hard because we get talking to things like, well, you know, TensorFlow is based on matrix math. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Right? I don't care what it's based on. All I know, I, I'm a math major, but I couldn't tell you anything about linear algebra anymore. That was way back in the olden <laughs> days, right? Right. All I know is that if I bring these variables in into, for example, a regression model, it'll help me make better decisions regarding inventory, procurement, safety, whatever the problem I'm going after. I can use data to make better decisions. That's all we're trying to do. Sure. That, that makes a ton of sense. Now, uh, shifting a little bit, um, whether it's big data, whether it's understanding big data, whether it's understanding these models, or whether it's the application of AI, in your view, and, and maybe this is more broader than the construction industry, but is it, are those going to complement or are they going to replace the jobs in our industry in the future? So they're going to complement most. Okay. 
They're going to make us better at what we do. They're going to help us make, are, make are better replace, decisions. Are they going to replace? I mean, you might have robots that can force, can, they can finish a street better than me, but I was pretty good at finishing a street. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, you but, still you know, have the human element of building, uh, building buildings, building hospitals, and building schools, and you, there's still a human element. You just wonder if the shift is going to be in the application of these of these features in in complementing the jobs. That's what you're saying. I think I, I to me it's it's much more any job that's highly repetitive is probably in being it's always been in danger of being reduced by automation. That's that story's never changed, right? Toll booth workers. Sorry, that's just if your if your career was based on being a toll booth worker, you know, not a good choice, right? right. Right. But what it's going to do, it's going to help us in the construction business, for example, to make better decisions, especially as things are constantly changing. Right. Whether we, we're going to do a pour and it starts to rain. Right. What do we do now? Right. We've already ordered the trucks. What are we going to do? Right. You're working with a client and the client says, well, you know, I need to actually add, you know, more ramps in order to be you know, more accessible. I need to do this. And the humans are going to have to figure out, oh, how do I make those adjustments? How do I, and how those adjustments ripple through everything else. And so, again, think about all the decisions and how they cascade. We can use data and analytics to help us optimize those decisions, to see through what those ramifications are. It's not going to, not going to, it's going to replace some people, some jobs. Um, but it's, there's this fascination that, that, that AI is something magical. AI is only a tool. It's, it's like a backhoe, right? It's only going to do what you program it or train it to do. We, as humans, totally control what an AI model does. And by the way, AI models don't talk to each other. This is like one AI model over here is going to say, oh, we're going to do this. And this AI model here is, oh, I'm going to do And they're going to collaborate against us. They're not Terminators. And well, I mean, you could create Terminators, but you'd, you'd have to program them and train them such that they would learn to, you know, we're going to kill humans. Okay, you know? We got people who do that already. So it's we we make so much about this AI, but it's only a tool. And I think the reason why AI is 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 such a front center of us is because all these movies around, you know, AI robots, iRobot, uh, Eagle Eye, all these movies where they uh, the AI goes goes rogue, right? If we had built movies about backhoes going rogue, we'd all be scared of backhoes as well. Sure. Makes sense. <laughs> I read a, or uh, I watched a uh, 60 Minutes uh, Australia episode, I think three or four days ago. And one of the creators of one of the robots said, look, I'm not worried about robots. I'm worried about human stupidity. And his point was, his point was exactly right on. It, it's, it's what humans are capable of doing with the technology. It's not the technology to be feared. So there's a lot of the conversation on the Senate right now and the AI space is around nefarious agents. Uh -huh. Right, who are going to take this and create misinformation, you know, deep fakes, kind of what we've already had for the last five or six years on social media. Sure. But I won't go there. Right. Yeah, right. So, and, and that's a rightful concern. We we need to have not only regulations in place, but we need to, we need to build AI models. They're going to monitor the AI models. Mm. You know, I, we may not as humans be able to flag deep fakes. AI models can. They'll tell you right away. That's that's not true. That's fake. They they've they've already got techniques for how to do that. There are two problems that actually scare me more than those. The ones where the nefarious characters, we're going to put rules and regulations and, and, and you know, AI models to help monitor those things. The two that I worry about, you said the first one, people building poorly constructed AI utility functions, yeah. right? Not thinking holistically around what are we trying to accomplish? 
What are the KPIs and metrics? And when I build an AI utility function, by the way, AI utility function is the beating heart of an AI model. It's the variables and metrics around which you're trying to get that AI model optimized. If I have five or six variables in there, I'm doomed. I'm looking for 80, 200, 1,000 variables and metrics because that is, that is how I ensure the AI model has a holistic view of what I'm trying to accomplish. So number one is poorly constructed AI models will lead to confirmation bias and confirmation bias will lead to bad decisions and ultimately the destruction of your business because your total addressable market's gonna shrink and we can talk about that later. The second one though, scares me more. I can address the first one. I mm -hmm. teach it in class and I know how to address this problem. The second one scares me because we have politicians mm -hmm. who do not think through unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. That's what scares me. Mm -hmm. don't have a good understanding and we don't put enough thought into the unknown unknowns, mm -hmm. right? We don't know what we don't know. And I have a methodology for that I, that I, I teach as part of helping boards of directors to teach their organizations. How do you go through a process to identify those unknown unknowns? Because you have to go to that process. You, if you're going to put a model in place, you got to bring together a wide variety of stakeholders and brainstorm and ideate what are all the things that could go wrong? What might go wrong? Capture all those might moments. I don't care if it's got a 0, 0, 0.000.1 probability of happening, right? I want to capture them all. I want to be able to, because if I can identify the unknown unknowns, if I can start to think about them, then I can put KPIs and metrics in place in order to monitor, manage, and optimize against those unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a process here, but we have a tendency from a political perspective to grandstand, to make all kinds of things. And we, we make these, these stupid decisions without thinking through, well, what are the second, third, and fourth order ramifications of you know, defunding public schools or defunding the police or whatever else you write? We, we make, as a society, politically, we make dumb decisions because we don't think through. And if we do that with AI, because AI is going to make decisions trillions of times faster than us, if we don't think about that, the AI is going to find a kink in the system and it's going to bury us right in the ground fast. So that's why we got to be really careful about making sure we're constructing holistic, healthy AI utility functions with lots of KPIs and metrics around which it has to optimize and going through a thorough process of the unknown unknowns to try to brainstorm those and figure out what KPIs and metrics we need to have put in place in order to mitigate the impact of unknown unknowns. Seems a little backwards. I'm going to ask this question, but do you have any confidence that big tech is, is responsibly informing Congress what they need to do? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a lobbyist by nature, so I, I know how this relationship works. It seems odd to me to ask Google and Microsoft and Apple to be at the table, but whose responsibility is it to inform the regulators? Everybody's. Everybody. So, so to, to do this right, we certainly need to have the, the large corporations who are manufacturing this stuff, which I'd bring in educational institutes. Mm -hmm. I'd bring in the... Um, nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, I'd bring in churches. I'd bring in. I'd bring in the homeless. I'd bring in the voices of everybody. We mm -hmm. need to understand everybody's perspectives in this process. And so, to do this isn't a matter of you know three smart people sitting in a room and figuring this thing out. That's actually that's a that's a recipe for disaster. We will end up with terminators. If we think, oh, these are the three smartest people. Let them solve this. No, it's a, it's on us as citizens. I could call us citizens of data science. It's on us as citizens to step up and make sure that our voice is heard, that, we, that we're being actively proactive in this process to make sure 
the AI models are are considering things like, um, you know, environmental issues, society issues, ethical issues, uh, partner issues, customer issues, employee issues. Right there's I had this thing I call the economic value wheel that looks at all these different dimensions around which you need to make certain that we've coded in to the AI utility function all these variables around ethics and and, and and community and such, right? If we don't factor those, if we don't put them into the AI utility function, the AI model's never gonna figure it out on its own. Yeah, It sure. does what you tell it to do. And so right. it's up to us, it's up to, if government was smart, they would bring seek to bring everybody together, not just the far right, the far left or the middle, everybody. You need, in fact, the far right's gonna have a perspective that's valuable to hear, the far left's gonna have a perspective that's valuable to hear, we need to hear everybody's perspective and we need to make certain that AI utility function has all those kind of conflicting variables and metrics because what the AI model does really well and what humans do really well is we make trade-off decisions. Think about the number of variables and metrics that you make. You try to decide, we're gonna go out to eat tonight, family. What are the variables you're gonna look at? Well, here's a starting list of the ones we use in an exercise I do with my students. Right. Think about all the variable metrics you're trying to you're, you're thinking about and you're trying to weight off against those. You've got a family of five. Good luck. Right. No one can agree on anything. But that's exactly what we want the AI model to do. It's going to constantly have to struggle with this and figure out how to make trade-off decisions. And today, this is the right, this is the right decision. We're going to go get steak tonight. And tomorrow we're going to go to McDonald's, right? Because that's what the kids want. And then you know, you you you're constantly trading off and learning as you go through this process, the weights of the variables are going to change based on people's mood and, this, and the weather conditions and what else is going on. We need to make sure that everybody's voice is heard in this process. That's what it means to be a citizen. Yeah. Stand up and be strong about this. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. That's, that's a great perspective. It's great advice. Um, I hope our audience uh, can hear that loud and clear. Um, Bill, I'm going to be respectful of your time. I think I could sit here for four hours and talk to you, to be honest with you. So uh, this has been really great. Um, I hope you'll come back. I hope to uh, have you back with the audience here. Um, and then uh, just a short little teaser. We're looking at bringing Bill in for the winter conference, hopefully uh, in February this year. I think your model and your workshop can be just absolutely applicable to a lot of our operations and our membership. And so I hope you and I can uh, stay in touch on that. Um, thanks to the audience. Bill, I guess before I let you go, where can our audience find you? Is are you, are you LinkedIn? Are you on social? Where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. In fact, I would encourage you to follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I usually write um, two, three or four blogs every month. Okay. LinkedIn um, that gets published. And what's most valuable about those blogs isn't the content of the blogs. It's just me pontificating on a particular topic or something. But it's the conversation that others have. Um, I, I love LinkedIn because I, I'm not getting trolled. I don't have, right. I'm not, it's, you have people who are all very concerned, for example, regarding, you know, how do we build a healthy AI utility function? Probably one of my most popular blogs, you know, probably had a couple 30, 30, 40,000 views and tons of comments, people all kind of jumping in because everybody wants to be part of this process. We just need to empower them to make sure they are part of this process. That's great. Um, Schmarzo, S-C-H-M-A-R-Z-O. That's right? it. Yep. Okay. Bill Schmarzo on LinkedIn. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate your time. It's been real. Thanks, Ben. I enjoyed it very much. And as we wrap up this episode of the podcast, we want to tell you about an upcoming class that we have called Eight Cash Flow Drivers to Greater Profitability. 
On July 12th, join Mark Stanley and learn about the four flows of business, information, physical, decision, and cash flow. You can register for this class by visiting www.mbi.build slash events. Hey! Hey!